This is St. Peter's Sunday Morning Bible Group, and I'm Pastor Adam. Each week, we record our teaching time to aid you in your discipleship and to help create a resilient faith that is able to respond to the changing landscape of culture and life with the fullness of grace and truth. And hey, if you happen to live in the Columbus area, we would love to see you on a Sunday morning. To plan your visit, head over to our website at stpeterscolumbus.org. That's stpeterscolumbus.org. Here is this week's Sunday Morning Bible Group. We are walking through 1 Corinthians 15, verse by verse. Uh, And that is, I think, 58 verses. So even if we spend one minute per verse, we barely get through everything. Um, So... That being said, we're not going to get through everything, but we're going to get through as much as we, we, we can. Uh, the goal this morning uh, is to lay a theological foundation for what the resurrection is. Um, and 1 Corinthians 15 is kind of known as like the, the, the great chapter of, of hope. Um, and it's where Paul lays um, argument after argument after argument for the resurrection. And what we want you to get Um, out of all of it, is that um, we cannot understand our resurrection without Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are so entangled, so intertwined, Paul gets that about halfway through, um, that that we can't understand them apart from each other, okay? Um, So because Christ has been risen, we also will rise. So without further ado, uh, Pastor John, you want to say a prayer and kick us off? Yep, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. And even though it is bitterly cold today, uh, it's good to be here. It's nice and warm. And Lord, as we dive into this chapter of Corinthians, just ask for your uh, Holy Spirit to now rest upon our hearts and minds as we study this. Guide us through it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, We're going to start verse 1. It says, uh, Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and which you have taken your stand. Pastor, what does that mean? (laughs) Kick that over to you. I thought you were going to go first. I was all like, okay, he's got this. So Paul starts off um, really all of, can you guys hear me okay? I can't hear myself. Okay. All of chapter 15 is pretty much like a, a correction of uh, the understanding that the Corinthians had of resurrection. So he kicks it off by kind of reiterating to them um, that the gospel that he has preached to them, the gospel that they have received, is the foundation of everything for them. And he's going to go on to define that gospel as the resurrection from the dead. That that is the culmination, the ultimate end of all of um, Christ's work in preaching. Um, so he starts off and he says, I want to take you back to what you have like stood firm on so far. You know, I, th- I think it's important to, to recognize that Paul, um, he's, he's, um, he's combating a myth. He's combating actually a heresy within the uh, Corinthian church. Um, but he starts by unifying the people, right? Paul's unifying them around the gospel uh, that he has preached to them. Uh, and it goes on to say this, verse 2, uh, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. 
uh, it, it gets to the point of, of why is the resurrection so important, right? The resurrection is, is the core central tenet of the Christian faith. Uh, and if Christ was resurrected, uh, that means that the rest of the, everything that he promised has to be true, right? Uh, because uh, nobody uh, has been able to be raised from the dead or raise themselves from the dead, um, but Jesus promised that that would happen. Jesus said, I'm coming back, right? Jesus said, on the third day, I will rise. If that's true, then everything else that he promised you has to be true. Because if he can keep that, if he can keep that promise, what promise can he not keep? And, and the reality is, if Christ is not resurrected, then everything that we're doing here is pointless. Plain and simple. Um, I, I heard it said in apologetics class once that if you don't believe in a six-day creation, everything else in, in Scripture falls apart. And I wanted to stop and be like, whoa, 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 hold up. There's truth to that. But ultimately, you could believe in a six-day creation, but if you reject the resurrection of the Lord, it's over. doesn't matter. Because that uh, resurrection is that core piece. It's the piece that, you know, when I was coming into faith, that I wrestled with the most was, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he accomplish everything that he said he did? And it was kind of this moment uh, for me in which like, I had to wrestle with that. And my conclusion was either the world is bought into the biggest lie of all time or Jesus really did do this. He really did rise from the dead. Uh... Verse 3, uh, Paul says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Um, that, that phrase, for, for what I received, is um, interesting. Um, uh, and we, we remember the road to Damascus, right, where, where Paul is confronted by Jesus, really, confronted and called. Um, that's, that's where he received this. He received this on the road to Damascus as an apostle. Uh, earlier in the epistles, uh, Paul would argue that he is an apostle uh, because he did see Jesus. That was, that's kind of like the first and foremost um, mark of an apostle, uh, is that you were an, an eyewitness to the resurrection, that you were an eyewitness uh, to, to Christ. Which is why in the Nicene Creed, um, we say that we believe in one holy Christian and, what's that next word? Apostolic church, right? Um, we are a church that is built on the teaching of the apostles. And the apostles were eyewitnesses to everything that Christ did. Um, uh, that, that, that next part in, in verse 3 um, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Yeah. Talk about that. I was actually going to ask you guys, does anybody know in the Old Testament where the resurrection of the dead is talked about? Other than Pastor Adam, <laughs> who has all the answers in front of him. <laughs> anybody want to throw something out? Go for it. Isaiah. Yes. Isaiah is such a big, big, big book. Like, everything. You've got there. a 90% like, be like... chance of being right <laughs> if it's in the Old Testament. <laughs> It's kind of cheating. But actually, 
Um, and we'll get into this possibly a little bit later about new heavens and a new earth and what that means. Isaiah lays a huge foundation for that. Job, yes! So if you ever uh, go to a funeral service uh, with me and you do the graveside with me, you'll hear me read from the book of Job every time. Because it talks there about how Job says, I will see my Lord in the flesh. Right? He has such confidence in the resurrection that he records it. And here's what's really interesting about Job is uh, it's chronologically one of the earliest books of the Old Testament. And so what it does is it lays the foundation that from the very beginnings, God's people have always held fast to this idea of the resurrection. Where else is it? Daniel chapter 12, he has a prophecy there uh, about the resurrection of the dead. And what's fascinating there is uh, he actually says something that we often kind of like askew or go around because it, it's harsh and kind of scary. He says that when Christ returns, uh, that there will be a resurrection of the dead um, and that some will rise to life and some to eternal condemnation. So you've got kind of this scary idea of, wait, 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 wait. It's not just the, the people who believed in Jesus that will rise from the dead. It's everyone who will rise from the dead, um, some to that everlasting life in the new creation and some to an everlasting condemnation. So quite frightening. Um, you had something about Noah, and I, was, I don't know that one. What's, what's fascinating about Noah uh, is that Noah's... This is Noah and the ark, right? Y yes. Okay. Compared to Noah and what? I don't know. <laughs> we just gave Do you no know context. any other Noah? I was just trying to <laughs> I know serve a guy. some context. Um, so Noah's um, name in Hebrew... Uh, means rest. Um, and, and if you read that in, in context, um, God's people, Adam, Eve, Cain, and, and, and everybody else at that point in time, uh, they are being described as people who, who desperately needed rest. Uh, rest from all of uh, the, the, the sinfulness of this, this world. Uh, so Noah is born, um, and if you kind of read the narrative, Noah is kind of like put up as like the one as like the seed that was going to come from the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15, um, that's Noah. Uh, and and um, the rest side um, comes in. This is actually fascinating, um, kind of deviated. I think it's later on. Um, but the word cemetery, do you know what the word cemetery comes from? I learned this. I have no idea. Uh, okay, good. Let me, let me teach you. Uh, um, oh, man, I can't. It's... it's um, Sleeping room, I did remember it. It's sleeping room or room for sleeping. Um, that's a cemetery, is people just sleeping. And that's what Paul is going to say. That's what death is. Death is just sleeping. Um, and uh, just like you wake up every single morning, so far so good. You guys are doing well. Um, one day we will wake up from death. Uh, God will tap you on the shoulder right, and say, you know, alarm clock's going off, time, time to get up, get going. Uh, also, in, in the book of um, Exodus that we'll be looking at in six weeks, um, no, less now, no, probably like, like four, three four, weeks, four weeks, too soon, um, the book of Genesis ends with Joseph's bones being taken from where he was into Egypt. 
Uh, and right before they leave Egypt, right, the ten plagues have happened, um, they're leaving Egypt, uh, the uh, narrative of ex Exodus gives us this, this strange little remark uh, that Moses took the bones of Joseph with them. Uh, and it says it in um, chapter 13, verse 19. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. And he said, and this is earlier in Genesis, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Why would Joseph want his bones carried up out of Egypt? Because Joseph knew that there was something better to come, um, and that he would one day want to be in God's promised land, which is another metaphor of the new heavens and the new earth that scripture gives to us. Jump back for a second. This is uh, the passage I referenced in Daniel chapter 12. It says, at that time, Michael, the great prince, that's the archangel, uh, who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And that, you know, that metaphor of sleep, you're going to see, dude, I'm getting old. I can't see with like my glasses on. I can't see with my glasses off. You're it's ridiculous. Old. Hey, no. Hey. Um, but that metaphor of sleeping in the dust is something that Paul picks up on. You're, you're going to hear it here in 1 Corinthians. You hear it in 1 Thessalonians. It is a consistent theologically correct and biblical metaphor because it assumes the other part. If you're asleep, you will what? Wake up. It's a natural, it's like my sermon, two things that go together. Uh, they naturally go together. There's just this natural expectation of a resurrection. Uh, let's pile through four and five together. Um, uh, uh, it says that he was buried that he was raised, right? So this is talking about Christ and what he did according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared, he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Uh, you get this idea um, according to the scriptures. That should sound familiar to you. Where do you hear that usually? The creeds, right, yeah. Um, so the creeds pick up on the language of scripture, uh, that he was buried on the third day according to the scriptures. And there's a lot of appearing that, that Paul goes through here. He's going to continue on, um, but that's exactly what happened after Jesus' resurrection, right? He appeared to a heck of a lot of people. Um, and these were physical appearances. These weren't ghosts, right? It wasn't just a figure of their imagination. Um, in Matthew, it said that... Um, I, maybe it was Mary, it was, it, it was one of the women, but they worshipped his feet, is, is what Matthew says. Um, back in the ancient of days, in the ancient times, um, ghosts were a little bit more of a thing, and ghosts, it was a common be belief, ghosts didn't have feet. So Matthew, speaking to a specific Jewish audience, puts that detail that we read through every single time, but puts that detail that he had feet. Luke puts the detail that, that uh, Jesus ate right? Spirits don't eat, they don't get hungry, right? But Jesus, he ate with his disciples on the beach. There's a lot of these appearances that come through. Uh, Pastor, read verse 6 for us. Yeah, 
I'm just fascinated that, that there was a belief that ghosts didn't have feet. Oh, yeah. You know that. I did not know that. Oh, there we go. Explained so much. <laughs> uh, verse Why 6. Nasty? After, <laughs> after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. We're going to pause there for a quick second. Um, really fascinating how much evidence Paul puts forth for the resurrection. Because he's trying to make a point that, look, it wasn't like Jesus just showed up to one or two people. He showed up to a plethora of people, 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. There's that metaphor that we're, we're going to continue to kind of run through. But that testimony, as Adam was saying, is so critical. And I think, you know, for a while there, it was really popular to question the, the veracity of the resurrection. And you might still hear some people try and argue, yeah, the resurrection didn't happen, or, you know, it's, it's false news kind of thing. But the reality is, from an, an, an ancient perspective, the amount of eyewitnesses and, and testimonies to it um, is just overwhelming. The evidence for Jesus appearing bodily after his crucifixion is absolutely overwhelming. Adam, do you want to take us through this idea of what Paul's talking about, beginning in verse 8 and then continuing in verse 9? Uh, yeah, so, so Paul, uh, verse 8, Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Um, if you read through the epistles, uh, Paul is very consistent um, that he doesn't deserve to be an apostle. Um, and he always brings up his persecution of the church, um, which is a big deal, right? He was killing followers of Jesus, um, stoning them, dragging them out, um, he approved, he was the one that kind of orchestrated the first uh, martyr, Stephen's death. Um, he approved of it. He looked on it. He delighted in it. Um, first Timothy 1.15, um, somewhere in verse, chapter 1, um, Paul says that he is chief of sinners. We have a hymn about that, chief of sinners though I be. Um, it is consistent that Paul sees himself as the least of the uh, apostles, but I just think that's a testament to, uh, isn't that God's, God, God's grace, though, right? That, that he considers himself least, but God uses that which shames the wise um, to be one of his greatest instruments. And I don't think that's just like a polite, um, well, what's the word I'm looking for? A polite platitude? Like, I don't think Paul's just being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think he's being humble. <laughs> I think he's being truthful right? And, and how many of us feel that way at times too, right? Uh, God, how can you use me? Um, you know what I've done. You see what I do behind closed doors, right? You know the thoughts in my mind, but yet you use me. I think it's a pretty um, powerful statement. It is. Verse 11 wraps up kind of this opener, and we've moved really quickly through the opener just because there's a lot of meat now to, to come and um, it's already been 20 minutes. I know. Like, Whoa. Um, so verse 11, he, he concludes, he says, Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. 
And it doesn't matter who preached the gospel. What matters is that the gospel was preached and received, that Christ died, that Christ rose from the dead. And then he moves us into really some much deeper um, arguments for the resurrection. Let's stop. Does anybody have questions of the first 11 verses? Let me ask you a different question while you think about that. I'll give you something else to think about. Coming into today, what would you say is your biggest like question around the resurrection, period? Did Jesus go down into hell? That's a great question. Uh, according to one scripture in, uh, one, one verse in scripture, yes. Um, and the question is, what did he do uh, while he was down there? Um, and you, know, you could probably do about a half a Bible study on it, but to sum it up, it's not huge. Um, to sum it up, Jesus went down to proclaim victory um, over sin, death, and the devil. Um, so as a NASCAR fan, I like to, to think of it as like a victory lap of Jesus. Um, some say that he went to hell to suffer, but he did that on the cross when he was forsaken by God as the ultimate suffering. Um, so his suffering or his humiliation was completed at his death being laid in the tomb. And what we call his exaltation uh, begins with that descent into hell to proclaim victory over these things. Great question. I'm going to move us along. Verse 12, this gets into the meat of it. Uh, and this introduces uh, the main problem of 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Paul is going to drill home for the remaining 60 minus 15, 60, 50, 45-ish verses. Um, so it says this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Um, so what's the problem? From verse 12, what do the Corinthians believe? There is no resurrection. That's what the Corinthians are believing in teaching. And Paul's going to say, huge deal. Um, but to make, a, um, to make it just a little more specific, um, the Corinthians uh, were not denying Christ's resurrection, right? They went through that in the first 11 verses, right? Christ was raised. So many people saw him, 500 people at one time, right? They aren't denying Christ's resurrection. They're denying the resurrection of all flesh. But again, those two, and this is what Paul's going to get at, those two are so intertwined that you can't talk about one without talking about um, the other. The question I think that, that arises is how, how does a church get off uh, theologically on this um, that they would believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but not the resurrection of all flesh. And again, setting this in context, what we have is we have a Greek church, right? It's a Gentile church in Corinth, and they're going to be influenced by their culture. Well, Greek uh, mythology, Greek belief at the time was that there was an, an afterlife of sorts, um, but it was not bodily. There was no flesh and blood that you were... Uh, disembodied. You're a disembodied soul or spirit, and uh, what you find in ancient Greek uh, understanding of the afterlife is that, like, really early on, it was just this, uh, everybody went to the same place, and it was kind of this shady, dark kind of place that was ruled by the god Hades. Uh, it was called the land of Hades. 
as Greek mythology and understanding grew, they began to delineate it out to where there was a, a good place, uh, I think it was called Elysium, and then there was a, a, a bad place called Tartarus, but there was still the middle area where most people went. So if you were really good, you went here. If you were really bad, you went to Tartarus. Um, if you were everybody else, you just kind of had this disembodied, non-flesh existence. And so what's happening in Corinth is they're taking that belief and sort of combining it with what they've learned from Paul, and Paul's trying now to correct it. Transfer to 21st century America. What are some myths around death that our culture perpetuates uh, that sometimes it might be easy to adopt in, in, in the church? Yeah? I've heard this, that uh, in the past, if you had your body cremated, that it precluded you from the resurrection. So uh, if, if you got cremated, uh, it, it, it excluded you from the resurrection of the dead uh, because Jesus isn't that powerful, right? Jesus isn't powerful enough to put back together a cremated body versus a body that's just kind of chilling in the casket, um, which I say that uh, flippantly, right? Um, but uh, it, it begs into question, um, George, can I get some more batteries? This one's dying. Um, begs into the question, um, what about those people that die tragically, right? Um, so it's not really easy. I mean it easy, not in like good, but it's really easy to bring up like 9-11, right? The people that were literally incinerated, what about them, right? Ah, they didn't choose. So, so there is a, I think behind what, what Dan brought up uh, with cremation is this idea of respect for the body. And I think that is a, a valid thing to keep in mind is that uh, we respect and cherish our remains um, because they were created by God, right? And it, it lends itself to um, the resurrection of the body. Like we're in a, there's some consistency there. But to go so far as to say, like if you choose to be cremated, like you, you get excluded from the resurrection, like everybody else who gets buried, they, they rise with a body, but you're stuck disembodied as a soul for eternity. Um, I, yeah, it's not, it's not a biblical thing. Um, as Adam's point, it is very true. Um, the power of God to form Adam out of the dust, he can form you out of whatever dust there is. From dust you came, to dust you shall return, and from that dust, God will give you a new body altogether. I think I've, I've heard the uh, argument that uh, the early church, the church history, does not support um, cremation. Um, and that's true because cremation wasn't an option. <laughs> Uh, in the early church or, or earlier on. That was really the only option that you had was um, natural burial. So for, for us here at St. Peter's, because it does beg the question, we have a columbarium, right? <laughs> Is this okay? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what we do when we place uh, cremains into the columbarium is virtually identical to that which we do at a, a regular graveside service. Um, is the remains are treated with the same utmost respect and honor. There's no difference in that. 
Um, and so we can take full confidence assurance that this is not an issue for us. I was going to get at the argument, hold on, for cremation, at least within uh, America, um, is that if you look at um, death as a whole, um, we're one of the very few countries that actually bury their dead for long extended periods of time. Like in other European countries, uh, you're kind of stuck in a mausoleum or someplace else for like six months. Um, and then your body is disposed of because they don't have enough room. Um, we in America, we have a lot of land. Um, so we have the room to actually bury people for long extended periods of time. Um, other countries don't have that. Um, so as we continue to do this, um, if you look at some of the studies, uh, that the cemeteries are starting to run out of room. Um, so cremation, at least from a very logical standpoint, um, is, is one way um, that we can lessen that push for space. Um, and there's no theological issues with it. So, yes. So the question was, is there some significance to Jesus being a tomb versus like an actual burial? And uh, uh, when did that practice start? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to exactly like when they would have transitioned from tombs to full burial. Um, In the Old Testament, um, you have, it's usually referred to that um, the people who died go, go to be with their fathers. Um, is kind of the phrase that, that the Old Testament uses. Um, but even like Abraham, um, um, is it Abraham who, who, who buys the field? Yeah. Um, who buys the field and, and then like all of his descendants are, I, I'm, I'm going to say buried. I don't know if it says, if that's what it, what it says, but, but they're all gathered there. Um, if you think of other deaths around the time of Jesus, um, Lazarus was in a tomb, right? Um, you have the widow of Nain, her son, uh, was in a funeral procession, so it wasn't quite to the tomb yet. Um, so it seems to be a practice at Jesus's time. What's interesting is like they would place the body in the tomb and allow it to decompose, and they'd come back and they would actually collect the bones and put them in what's called an ossuary, it's a little box, and they would hang on to those. Um, I don't know, it was maybe a decade, 15 years ago, there was a whole lot made out of like, did we find the bones of Jesus in a box that had Jesus on or something like that? We didn't. Uh, but National Geographic made a lot out of it so they could get people to buy magazines and, and watch television shows. Uh, but that was a regular Jewish practice. So your family or families had a, a tomb, and there would oftentimes be a couple of spots that would be cut out into the rocks um, where they would wrap the bodies and, and place the bodies. And then once the decomposition completed, they would collect those bones so the tomb could be reused. Now, I don't know offhand what they would do with, with the ossuaries and, and things like that. I hope you are enjoying this week's Sunday Morning Bible Group. For more information, you can head over to stpeterscolumbus.org. There, you will find more faith content and you can support this ministry. And don't forget, if you are looking for that local church and you live in Columbus, we would love to see you on a Sunday morning. Now, back to the Sunday Morning Bible Group. So the question was, uh, if you commit suicide, you're not going to heaven. How many of you guys heard that? How many of you guys were taught that? Fascinating. I was never taught that. I was going to say, how many believe that? How many, how many <laughs> believe that? Um, Thank you. So I think the, the, the issue behind that is you die sinning and rejecting like that which God gave you life. Um, 
And uh, from my perspective, suicide is never, we had a class not too long ago on mental health, um, but suicide is never something where somebody says, you know what, I'm going to do this despite God. That's my sole, sole reason for doing it. I've never heard that, never once. Suicide is um, something uh, th in which people are in deep, deep despair and depression. Um, and that is an attack of the enemy, plain and simple. That God would not spare us and save us from that seems counter to his very uh, nature and his work on the cross. Um, and what's the only thing that condemns? What's the only thing that sends to hell? Unbelief. The only thing. Nope, it's not this and something else. Just that. So the question is not, uh, how did you die? Right? Did you kill yourself? Did you, were you incinerated? Did you die naturally? No, no, death is not natural. Uh, did you die of old age? Right? Uh, that's not the question. The question is, um, did you believe and trust in the mighty deeds of Jesus? That's the sole question. Um, all right, so we're going to continue on. Let's keep on, on pushing. Paul is going to get into these if-then statements, um, and, and here he's building his, his argument for why the Corinthians are wrong, really. Um, so verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Let's stop there. So his point here is that if, if you don't believe in a resurrection of our bodies, if you don't believe in a resurrection, then Christ couldn't have rise, been raised from the dead. Um, these two are inseparable. They go together. Again, that's the fundamental issue that Paul's trying to deal with. So if you look at it, um, it says, whoa, I lost my spot. Here we go. If there is no resurrection of the dead of all people, then not even Christ has been raised. Because if there's no resurrection, period, then Christ can't be raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Because the hope that we have is the resurrection from the dead. And I, I think that's something that, that in Christianity, especially modern Christianity, we have struggled to hold on to. That our true hope always points us to that resurrection. What has happened in, in I think, modern America, Western society at least, is that we have adopted this, our true hope is heaven. He gets all excited. I, <laughs> Our true hope is, is heaven. That the end, be all end of Christianity, the be all end of our faith is heaven. Now, when you start to get into to what is heaven, and you talk to most people, what's the images? When I say heaven, what are some of the images you see uh, in, in your head? Gold. I heard gold. Pearly gates. Pearly gates, gold streets. <coughs> Jesus, mansions, angels, light, clouds in the sky. Clouds in the sky. Okay, so here's what's really fascinating. Just about everything that everybody said 
comes mostly from what book? Anybody know? Revelation. Revelation. Uh, clouds comes from some other things. I mean, you've got like the return of Christ. He comes on, on the clouds. You've got clouds in the sky. But I think kind of the cartoon version of heaven is you, you go through the pearly gates and then you get what? Your wings and you get a harp and you sit on a cloud and you... I don't know what you do for eternity because I don't play the harp. Uh, but that's the cartoon version. This is, I think, the biggest misconception um, is that our, our ultimate goal is heaven that, that we described. Um, and heaven is this disembodied existence, right? Because when you die, what happens? Your body goes into the ground or into an urn or, where, or wherever it is, right? Uh, and your soul goes to heaven. And people say, that's it. Uh, when I came to understand that that's not it, that created so much joy uh, and a breath of fresh air and hope um, because our soul and our body at that point in time are not together. And that's not good. God did not design for our soul and body to be separated. It's not like Velcro, right? You're going to put it, put it, put it back together. Uh, they were never meant to be separated. That's why death uh, is one of the most unnatural things that you will ever go through on this earth. Because your soul and your body are ripped apart. And they're put back together, not when you get into heaven, but when Jesus comes again. Which means that the new heaven and the new earth is you a perfected version of you but it's you like you will have your your personness your uh, whatever makes you you is gonna be there at the day of the resurrection a perfected version um, but it is you so your final aim uh, is not heaven right uh, your final aim is when Jesus comes back. And I think that's perpetuated a lot um, through, uh, I, I say that for death is like a pig and we try to put lipstick on it. Um, but we've tried to, um, um, emasculate is not the right word, um, but we try to downplay death in, in this, this world. We try to make it a little prettier. Um, and we don't, usually it's not quite as stark as it actually is. Um, because when, it's, when you feel the full veracity, veracity of death, you know that it's not good. But the resurrection makes it so much better. So I want you guys to, to let's dive into Scripture. Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. So this is early in Revelation. Uh, this is coming right after all of the letters to the churches. So it's kind of like the, the second vision that, that John has in the book. And it says this. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I uh, had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what, may, mu blah, sorry, what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled 
the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. There are, these are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, uh, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So I, I read this because this is a picture of the throne room of God, right? Door opens up into heaven. This is what John sees. It is the presence of God. You see angels here. You see these elders worshiping and praising God. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Sorry, man. Revelation chapter 21. At the end of the book, John sees something similar but very different. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And uh, this idea of the sea is there's no longer, like, Israelites were terrified of the sea. They were not a seafaring people. Um, so everything bad equated to the ocean, right? Like Jonah left and nearly, well, did pretty much die in the ocean. It's not a good thing, right? So the sea, the, the bad is gone. Um, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That's not an actual city. That's the people of God who are prepared as the bride. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. So if you think about it, right now, God's dwelling place is heaven. And we're here. Now, obviously, we've got some other theological things we can dive into, but what changes is in the new creation, the fulfillment of Christ coming and dwelling among us in flesh and blood is, is culminated. God now dwells among his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And it says, uh, verse 4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away, those things corrupted by sin. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Uh, and what's interesting, if you continue on, we won't read it for time's sake, but if you continue on in verse 21, a lot of the descriptions that you guys had, the pearly gates, um, all the gold, that kind of stuff, it's actually contained right here in Revelation 21 as God uh, reveals to John the new heavens and the new earth. If you jump all the way back, we'll do this one last thing. I know, you still got like a thousand things we want to go through. Um, go all the way back to the book of Isaiah chapter 65. 
Because Scripture interprets Scripture, and it's so powerful. So Isaiah chapter 65, beginning at verse 17. Very, very clear. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. So the things of suffering and sin. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight in its people of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. So from, from Isaiah all the way through Revelation, what God has been working towards and creating is this new heavens and new earth, this new creation in which a resurrection for those who are, have died in Christ, that's where we go. Um, and, and I think, like, to Adam's point, it's really, really powerful because it's not just this disembodied existence that we have. It's actual life that we have. Dan. What happens, what happens to the damned? Ooh. Do they get redamned? So what happens to the damned? Do they get redamned? Re <laughs> like the Hoover Dam broke. Um, so if you think about that Daniel chapter 12 uh, verse, right? Christ returns, and at his return, we have the resurrection of all the dead. Um, and what happens is those who, so we all have a bodily existence, but those who have been damned, they're risen to a bodily existence in hell. And we are risen to that bodily existence in heaven. Um, and so you have the, the images of, from Jesus, the uh, separation of the sheep and the goats and things like that. It's all tied together for that. So it's not a, a, a redamming, um, but it is a resurrection to that condemnation. The question is, where is their soul in the meantime? Uh, so when you die, you are judged. Um, and when you come back to life, you're not rejudged, um, but they, you go one of two places, right? You either go to heaven or you go to hell. Now you are in heaven and hell up until the resurrection of the dead without a body. The great thing about the resurrection is the soul and the body get put back together again. Um, now, if you believe in trust in the words of Jesus, that's a phenomenal, uh, encouraging statement. If you're not, that's a terrifying statement, um, which gets to the urgency of the mission of the church, right? Um, so that in-between time, uh, theologically, it's called the interim state. Um, there's this time uh, between when you die and when Jesus comes back, um, and that state, uh, usually for many people, uh, they want to know um, because it's their, it's their spouse, it's their parents, it's their grandparents, it's their loved ones, it's their children. Um, what are they doing? Um, scripture is pretty silent on it. There's like two, three, four verses that talk about it. The, the biggest verse that we have is the, um, the criminal on the cross next to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. So it's immediate. Um, for those who come to know Jesus, it's paradise. That's about the extent of it. Um, because the hope um, throughout all scripture is not a disembodied existence. That's not the hope. The hope is the resurrection. Um, which really gets to verse 18. Um, Paul gets personal. Uh, he said, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. 
right? And here, um, Paul's calling out again uh, the Corinthians' grandmas and grandpas and parents and spouses and kiddos and aunts and uncles. Um, it's not that um, it's okay that they're in heaven. It's they're lost. Yeah, it's not this like, like, all right, you know, the resurrection, you know, it's not going to happen. That's okay. You still have this disembodied existence. No, it's just you're utterly lost. Um, my favorite quote um, from N.T. Wright um, says, heaven, heaven is great, but it's not the end of the world, which is like just phenomenal. Um, and that gets to the point, right? Heaven's great. Uh, it's paradise, is what Jesus says on the cross. Um, Christ, or Paul says, uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Um, it's great, but it's not the end of the world. The end of the world is the resurrection. Um, I want to push through, um, through verse 20, and then we're going to jump towards the end. Um, so it says in 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. You're going to tackle that one, pastor. And then verse 20, uh, but Christ has indeed, has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Tackle 19. Okay. Yeah, so if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if there's no resurrection from the dead, then all you have really is this life. And this life stinks, doesn't Most it? Most of the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have glimmers of really good stuff, but for the most part, uh, it's terrible. It's really interesting. Years ago, um, I heard this a missionary was talking, and uh, they had talked to uh, about a 10-year-old girl here in the United States about what, what would like the heavens and, and create, new creation be like, and she described it as virtually a better version of her life in America. And then they went over to a, a third world country, third world country in Africa, and talked to a girl who uh, her life had just been, same age, had been ravaged by war and, and all kinds of stuff. And her phrase, it'll be nothing like this, right? If all we have is this life, then, as Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. He always points us to that uh, eternity and that new creation, that resurrection. Uh, verse 20, you have this in introduction of the word first fruits. Um, and this is, again, one of the leading metaphors of Christ's resurrection. He is of the first fruits. Um, the way that I think about it is like wine, wine making, right? Which I know zero things uh, about, but I do know this. Um, you know, when you grow your, wine, when you grow your grapes, um, how do you know when they're ready? The wine master, sommelier, whoever it is, um, tastes the grapes, right? And if the grapes are good, what... What, what do they know? That the rest of the harvest is good. That they're ready to be picked. Right? So Jesus is those first fruits. He's the first grapes. And that first grape was good. Jesus came back to life. It was the resurrection. So if Jesus came back to life, what do we know about the rest of the harvest? We're coming back to life. And I think it's really important to, to note that, you know, with Jesus resurrection on Easter it's tied to Jewish festivals I'm sure Pastor Chad taught on this multiple times but as you go through it that Sunday that Sabbath uh, the end of the Sabbath after um, Passover 
is a first fruits festival. So Jesus rises on that festival to, to pretty much say there is yet a greater harvest still to come of resurrection. It's not just him, but it's going to be all of us. It's going to be all of us. So how far do you want to 51. Push? All right. All right. We are skipping so many, so many verses, y'all. 51, all the way to the end. This is, this is the good meat and potatoes here. Um, we're missing a lot of meat and potatoes in the middle, but uh, this, is, this is the phenomenal stuff. Um, all right, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Paul tells us that there will be a generation of Christians, or generation of humanity, that is alive at Christ's second coming. Maybe that's you, maybe that's us, maybe that's our grandkids, maybe that's our great-great-grandkids, maybe it's seven times grandkids down the line. Um, but there will be a time. Some will be asleep, some will be awake, but we will all be changed. Rather asleep or awake, your state does not matter because Christ has come back. Anything, Hefe? Or keep on going? You're good. Keep all right, going. let's keep on going. Uh, verse 53 uh, For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? I love it that Paul quotes the Old Testament to mock death. That's what he's doing. He's mocking death, right? Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Um, many of us can answer that question today. Many of us can testify to the sting that death comes and the victory that it has now. But again, the point of 1 Corinthians 15 is that at some point in time, that sting will be gone and we will all be resurrected. So one of the things that I struggle with as a pastor is and we, I found this in my, my last church when I first got there. Um, people would always refer at funerals to like their victory service. And I would always just kind of hesitate, like, wait, 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 wait. When's the victory over death? It's not when you die. Because if that were the case, death wouldn't hurt. We would celebrate. We would rejoice. We wouldn't cry. Our hearts wouldn't break. The victory comes at the resurrection. Now the power over you is gone because of Christ's resurrection. And so, you know, we, we can celebrate the blessings of life on this earth and celebrate the blessings of, of life eternal and remind everybody that there is yet to come a great victory in which death will no longer be a part of our vocabulary. You will say death, and we'll all go, what are you talking about? Are you kidding me? I, Isaiah uses a metaphor in, in 65 of, you know, the, every older person will see all their years. 
and every younger person will, will grow up. And his point is this, that there's nothing that's going to intercept, to, to, to throw off course the life that God has for you because the power in every bit of death and sin is destroyed. That's the victory that we long for. Um, and so, you know, moments uh, uh, like funerals and things are, are moments where the, the Christian rides both joy, because we know what's coming, and grief. And when we say it's just a victory, we rob ourselves of grief. And I think grief is really, really important in all of this. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, we grieve as Christians. And that has to be accounted for. Because that's what death and sin does, is it brings grief. But we don't grieve like the rest of the world. We grieve with hope that when Christ returns with that trumpet blast, our loved ones will awaken and we'll be united with them. And I want to end with this. we got four minutes left. Um, Romans 8, I think. Um, Paul talks about the sufferings of this world. Uh, and he makes the point um, that the sufferings of this world cannot compare to the glory that is to be revealed. So the question is, how, how does our, our theology that we, of resurrection um, and to some degree in times fit with what's being produced by uh, David Jeremiah? Um, Who is David Jeremiah? David Jeremiah, I don't know his exact background, but he is a, a pastor who I know his theological bent is um, premillennial, dispensational. Um, we're so not going to unpack that. We're not going to unpack okay, that. Good, thank you. Um, <laughs> but basically, uh, it, it, it conflicts with what is taught by this guy, David Jeremiah, um, because end times is so different. And what we believe based off of Scripture in Daniel, uh, 1 Thessalonians, Book of Revelation, is that uh, there will come a day, a rapture of sorts, in which Christ will return with the trumpet blast, and those uh, who are dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, so when Christ comes, the dead will rise first. And that's the rapture. Like, that's what we're talking about. The biggest difference between a, a David Jeremiah approach and, and a, a solidly Lutheran, what I would argue very biblical uh, approach, is that's a one-time thing that will happen when Christ returns. Everyone will know it. It will be clear. It will be seen. You don't have to worry that Jesus came and you missed it. Scripture even has a, a teaching on this. They were being taught that Christ had already come and they missed it. And Paul's like, you didn't miss it. You won't miss it. For every eye will see that Christ has come on the clouds with glory. So when that happens, it's one time. It's not done in stages, but it's one moment. You do not have to worry that you missed it or be concerned for that. You don't need to be concerned that you're in a taxi cab with a Christian driver. No, not at Jesus all. When Jesus comes back, because nope. then it'll... Paul... Yep. Uh, says that all of this world is going to be worth it, uh, which is just like the journey that we're on now, the sufferings that we go through, um, the pain that we endure at the resurrection, it's gonna be worth it. Have you ever been on a trip um, where you were so glad to get to where you were going? 
Like maybe you had a, a, a car trouble, uh, maybe the plane was a little too shaky, right, in the air, um, and you got to where you were going and you said, Ho like, holy Moses, like, thank the good Lord, I made it. That's the resurrection. No matter what happens between now and the resurrection, you're going to get there. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining like the sun, right, that song goes, um, it's going to be like, you know, John, did you go from cancer or did I go from cancer? I, uh, oh, no, you, you, went, you went from the car crash, right? And then, and then, and then I went from cancer. But it's going to be so far in the distance that the resurrection and the glory that we have is going to so far be out of this world, out of this league, that we can barely remember, if at all, the sufferings that we endure here. And that is the power of the resurrection. Uh, as we continue on in the class, um, we're going to bring some different speakers in. Now that we have kind of like a theological framework of what we're talking about, um, we're going to bring in different speakers. Next week, hospice, two hospice nurses are coming in um, and, and really talking about this idea of um, kind of like dying well, right? Hospice nurses come in um, when you're kind of at that dying stage. Um, questions like, um, you know, uh, hospice nurses deal are like compassionate, right? Jesus was compassion all, all over the place. Um, how do hospice nurses help not only your loved one, but also your family through that? Um, what decisions do they need to make? What do they see? Like, how can they tell? Like, you know, you know, John's, John's going, or he can hang on for a couple more days, right? How do they see that? Um, all those questions and the questions that you come with are going to be answered next week. Until then, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks uh, for the resurrection. Uh, we give you thanks, Lord, that uh, being with you in your presence uh, is paradise, uh, is so great. But as great as that is, as great as heaven is going to be, so much greater is the new heavens and the new earth that you are preparing for us. So, Lord, we ask um, that you strengthen our souls, strengthen our minds, strengthen us to live through the suffering and the pain of this world, that we may get to the glory that is yet to come, which comes by the Spirit and by faith. We ask this all in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Thanks, guys. Hey, I hope that you enjoyed this Sunday morning Bible group. If you did, be sure to share it and subscribe so we can get you more faith content when it's available. And I want to give a shout out to all people who call St. Peter's home. It is through you that we are able to connect people to Jesus for the first time and keep people connected for a lifetime. We hope to see you next time.